Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 4, 25 through 28. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, not long ago, I was having lunch with a new uh, married couple who was uh, checking out Christ's community, and uh, that's pretty common. They had some questions, wanted to get to know us better. And so after talking about community groups and classes and membership, all the pretty normal stuff, the, the husband had a very specific question for me. So he had already told me a little bit about what he did. He was an ER doctor here in town which means, among other things, that his schedule is crazy and often unpredictable. And if any of you guys are in healthcare, you're probably nodding along like, yep, hard to predict all of that stuff. Uh, and he said something like this to me. It was something like, Andrew, at our, at our previous church, because they had moved, at our previous church, uh, we were involved in the small group and we were members and we were very committed but we were often told that we could not serve in leadership positions at the church uh, because I was not able to make it to enough church events due to my work schedule. How does Christ's community think about leadership? And now listen, I love church. I love churches. It's part of, it's part of why I do what I do. And every local church, if you haven't figured this out, has incredible strengths and weaknesses, just like people do, and we need them all. But this kind of stuff drives me crazy. Because, and here, because, while it may sound like a neutral question, how does this church think about leadership? I know, because I've had conversations like this, that underneath that question is a well of, of pain and confusion. And not only that, but there is a dangerous and short-sighted, unbiblical idea that has been communicated to this family with probably without anyone knowing it. No one says this out loud, and perhaps we don't even consciously think it, but this is what's being communicated to them. The idea is this, what God cares about, his kingdom agenda, what he wants to do through his people in the world, all of that, it ends at the doors of this building. And once you leave and you go out to your car and you go back to your work at the office or at home or whatever, you are no longer in a leadership role. You're no longer serving. For all intents and purposes, other than not actively sinning at work, God is not using you and we'll see you next Sunday. And this doctor, think about this with me, this doctor who is literally helping to save lives feels like a second-class Christian because in the midst of, of truly loving his neighbor as himself in the ER, he is too busy to make it to every single church event. Okay, I'm done. That was all I had to say today. Um, 
<laughs> we talk a lot at Christ Community about connecting our Sunday faith to our Monday work. We talk about it so much that some of you are probably sick of us saying it. That's how much we say it. But we have to keep talking about this because time and time again, I meet people who for their entire lives have never been taught that God not only cares about the work they do every day, but has actually called them and equipped them to do it. That there's something in every day that God gives us that no one else can do, that He has specifically called us to do. And that is Paul's point here in Ephesians. If you were here last Sunday, Tom actually preached from this very same passage, Ephesians 4, but we did not touch a whole lot on verse 28 because we wanted to take our time with this topic. When the Apostle Paul, remember he's writing this letter to Ephesian churches, here in this section, he gives us a metaphor. He says that we need to put on the new self. When he talks about this new self, this new life that Jesus gives to his people, that new life is not just about who we are on Sunday. It is deeply about who we are on Monday as well. So if you have a Bible, turn to the letter of Ephesians chapter 4, and we're really just going to look here at verse 28, and I'm going to reread that for us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Seems simple enough, right? But hidden here in this verse are some powerful principles in the Christian life and what it truly means to do good, honest work in Christ. Okay, that's what I want us to talk about. And the first thing Paul reminds us here is that honest work requires repentance. I don't know how often we think about this, but honest work requires repentance. And by repentance, I, I simply mean this. Honest work requires turning away from something towards something else. And in particular, it requires us turning away from something that may feel convenient or easy or tempting for us in our work towards something God actually has for our good. That's what repentance is. And if you pay attention in this part of the letter, almost everything Paul is commanding of this church requires this kind of repentance. He says, put away falsehood, speak the truth. That's verse 25. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Later, he'll say, no corrupting talk, only encouraging, building up talk. No slander or gossip, only kindness and gentleness. So over and over, we, we turn from something that may seem good or easy towards something that's actually God's design for us in every sphere of life. Same here in work. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Now, here's why I wanted to point all of that out. Every other kind of repentance here is not limited to a kind of person. Paul doesn't say, let the slanderer not slander, let the liar not lie. In other words, it's a command for everyone. You read it and that's pretty clear. This is for everybody. But we get to this verse and it's easy for us to read, let the thief no longer steal and assume that Paul isn't talking to us anymore. He's talking to those people out there who steal. But I don't steal, so I'll just keep reading. Right? Be honest. If you were reading this straight through, that's probably how most of us would read the beginning of this passage. I know I, I do that. 
And I almost always fail to ask myself, what does this stealing part have to do with me? Why would Paul feel the need to point this out? Unfortunately, this has a lot to do with us. Paul is referencing one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you shall not steal. This has always been an important part of God's design for his people. We probably have an intuitive sense for what God means by that, right? Stealing is to take someone else's property without permission and without intent to return it. However, when we hear the word steal, we probably think of a few kind of stereotypical things. We think of a bank robbery. We think of a carjacking. We think of stealing a candy bar at the convenience store, at the cash register. But those are all examples actually of only one kind of stealing. And Paul has much more in mind here. When the Bible talks about theft, it has all kinds of categories to describe that. I was actually in conversation uh, a few weeks ago about this passage with a guy named Matt Rustin, who if you've you've been around here long enough, he was actually a resident here. Uh, Since then, he is now the executive director of Made to Flourish, which is one of our national partners. And they help pastors in particular connect Sunday faith to Monday work, kind of this whole conversation. He's very passionate about that. He's a part of our Brookside campus. We were talking about this passage, and he noted to me that there are at least four biblical categories for stealing in the Bible. He said, you know, there's embezzlement, which is when someone entrusts you with funds and they are misused for selfish gain, you're embezzling, you're stealing. And Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus, is an example of this. In John 12, uh, we're told that Judas would often skim off the top from their offering that they lived on for himself. That's embezzlement. He was entrusted with it, and he was stealing. There's also withholding of wages. The Bible talks a lot about that. The Old Testament, over and over again, warns employers and people in power about how God feels when fair wages are not paid to labor as previously agreed upon. And that was a very common practice in the ancient world. Or overcharging people. So in Luke chapter 3, a bunch of tax collectors go to John the Baptist and they're baptized. And they say, what does it mean to live this new, this new baptized life for God? And John the Baptist tells them specifically, stop collecting more taxes than you're required to because they would take more than they needed and they would keep the remainder for themselves. Similarly, in that same passage, there is a group of soldiers who are baptized and John the Baptist tells them, don't demand money by making threats of violence or arrest, which was a form of extortion. And these are all examples of theft that perhaps we don't often think about when we come to a passage like this. And of course, they have modern day equivalents identity theft, which some estimates put it at $52 billion of theft in 2021 alone through identity theft. Tax fraud every year, intellectual property theft, shoplifting, which actually turns out to be more common among employees than customers, unpaid wages, Ask any small business owner about this, and they'll tell you how common it is to not get paid or to be underpaid or to be paid late by clients. And then there's just the softer stuff, right? Like chronically underworking while you're on the clock or not giving credit to a team member or an employee for a good idea 
or not taking the blame for things you've played a part in at work. All forms not only of dishonesty, sure, but in some respects of theft. And Matt Rustin was sure to remind me of this. Even pastors and Bible scholars are tempted to steal. He was like, Andrew, you got to feel bad too. I said, thank you. Right? And maybe you've heard this, but there, because there have been several high-profile cases of this, but plagiarism is rampant in things like books and sermons and articles, presenting an idea as if it's your own and it's not. And so when Paul warns us today to no longer steal, it is absolutely relevant to us. And if we really self-examined here, we probably could find examples in our lives where we've stolen whether that was time or, or something of value or recognition, can look a lot of different ways. And we must certainly admit that to steal like that is very tempting for us. No matter what our, our, our paid or unpaid work looks like, there are forms of stealing that are tempting to us. Why is that? It's because work is really, really hard. <laughs> That's why. We were created for good work. We know this from Genesis 1 and 2. The first two chapters in the Bible, God makes Adam and Eve and immediately calls them to co-labor with him, to work with him, to cultivate the good garden that he gave them. They worked hard in that garden, but work wasn't hard until Genesis 3. And if you remember, Adam and Eve disobey, they disobey God, and one of the things that fundamentally changes and breaks in God's good world is God warns them and us now that work will feel like a burden and our work will fight against us. It'll fight against our best efforts and our best intentions. And we're going to be tempted to cut corners, to get the gain without the pain, to steal, especially when I think it feels harmless to us to do so. But that must not be so with God's people. That, that's the old self that we're taking off to put on the new self. Instead, Paul says this. He says, do not steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, I know this is annoying, but every now and then I've got to remind myself why I went to seminary. So, the literal Greek construction here that the ESV is translating, actually is a little, the NASB gets a little closer to it, but rather he must labor producing with his own hands what is good. I like that better. What is good? Now, Paul isn't literally saying here that all good work has to be handmade. But the principle here is that this new self in Christ, by our own effort and hard work with God's help, we produce good things that add value to God's good world and genuinely help our neighbor. That's what honest work is. Honest work is any work that produces something good in the world. Now, Paul obviously is speaking into a very different economic world than the one we live in, but there are a few things worth noting here. Notice with me, Paul does not define good work as paid work. Paul does not define good work as grandiose revolutionary work. He does not define it as flexible working hours or work that yields a large income or even work that we are particularly passionate about all the time. doesn't list any of that. And all of those things, by the way, income, flexibility, passion, those are great gifts if you have them. They are. 
But how many of us in this room, and be honest, paid, unpaid, stay-at-home parent, office worker, student, retired, and anything and everything in between, have looked at our daily work and felt underwhelmed by it, disappointed by it, frustrated, bored, whatever? Of course you have. We all have. If we're honest, at some point or another, we've probably wondered to ourselves, does this matter to anyone what I'm doing? Does this matter? Is what I'm do- does this math homework, this spreadsheet, this board I'm serving on, this diaper that I'm changing, this meeting that I'm trying to get through, this email I'm responding to, does it matter to anyone? And the answer is yes. It all matters to Jesus because by His grace, He can produce something good in the world through it, even if it feels small and insignificant and unnoticed to us. It is always noticed to Him. Jesus' view of good work is as diverse and as detailed and as nuanced as all the work experience represented right now in this room and in His church all over the world. God is first and foremost presented to us as a worker. He works, and He created us to work, and Jesus redeems us to work, not only as a means of providing for ourselves, but of worshiping Him, of serving Him, and loving our neighbor as ourself, which means that there are things on the calendar you're avoiding looking at right now. (laughs) and in your inbox, and on your to-do list that God specifically equipped and called you to do. They may seem, from our perspective, small, insignificant, boring, and even meaningless at times, but they are not. They all matter to God. And not only that, He's in the work with us. Not only does it matter to him, he's there with us. And and Matt Rustin pointed this passage out to me. It's in Isaiah 28. And down, just listen to this, okay? Bear with me here. Isaiah 28, verse 24. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put put weed and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as its border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart uh, wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cart wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Andrew, why did you just read that? That's a lot of detail about how to farm in an ancient agrarian economy. That's the point. That is the point. Isaiah the prophet is telling us that God specifically shares His wisdom and design for planting and growing and harvesting with the farmer. God teaches them God not only teaches them the ethics of farming, the theology of farming, He teaches them how to farm because He designed it all. If we were to rewrite that passage for work today, you could make it about computer programming or financial advising 
or teaching students, or raising children and grandchildren, or running a meeting, or managing an employee, or serving at a restaurant, or consulting on an upcoming medical procedure. On and on and on that list could go. There's nothing in the world Jesus isn't an expert in. And he goes to work with us every day. That is an incredible promise. All work that produces good things not only honors God and serves our neighbor, we are never in it alone. And finally, we don't just do it for ourselves. This is where Paul ends his point. Why do we work, Paul says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, Paul will talk elsewhere of the importance of our work for providing for our own needs and ourselves. So for those who are able to work, the Bible says, hey, it it is a part of our responsibility to take care of our own needs first as we're able to do that. But Paul never stops there when he talks about work. He always wants to remind us that in Jesus, our work, our income, our skills, our time are also meant for the benefit of those around us because honest work enables generosity enables generosity. We actually cannot talk about God's view of work until we have seriously thought about how we can be generous with what we know, with what we have, and what we do. Notice with me, God himself was not content to know all things and have all things and do all things. He made humans in his image to share his knowledge and his wealth and his beauty and his power and his love and his care. And we too are designed to give ourselves away in that kind of generosity. And obviously that starts in sharing our material wealth. That's Paul's main focus here. And remember in that economy, that was mostly concrete goods. So that probably would have included things like sharing food with those in need, clothing, housing, basic necessities. In our economy now, that probably looks first and foremost like sharing of our money by giving it away generously. And notice Paul does not limit this vision of generosity for quote-unquote wealthy people, however you define that term. We are all gifted and equipped to work and to serve and to share with those in need. In, in fact, in the New Testament, uh, when Paul, if you um, study his life, at, at one point, He went to all these churches in Macedonia for a collection, for an offering for the Jerusalem churches who were suffering. And in 2 Corinthians, he's telling the Corinthian churches about the Macedonians and about their generosity. And in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 2, he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, that is the Macedonians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He goes on to say that they gave as much as they were able to the Jerusalem churches. And he he says, and I testify, they gave beyond what they were able to do. We must not believe the lie that we, once we have a little bit more in our bank accounts, that then we'll be generous. Because we will never have enough to be generous if we don't understand that we were always designed to be generous. There will never be enough until we trust and believe that generosity is a part of our good design by God's wisdom. It's good for us. And when done wisely, and especially for those in need, we actually participate in helping others not be tempted to steal and to sin to provide for themselves. 
We circle all the way back to the beginning of Paul's point. We can provide. We can help. We can give opportunity to those who might be even more tempted to steal to provide for themselves. We're actually a part of the redeeming work God's doing through our generosity. But this isn't just money. We can be generous with our skills as well. I, I was talking to a member here, and I won't embarrass him with his name, but he was talking about how the bank that he works for has started a new program where uh, nonprofits for free can apply for help with things like accounting and IT and HR, things that they often can't afford to do on their own. They'll do it for free. That's incredible generosity from this large company that he gets to play a part in. I know retirees who use their, their networks and their savings and their time to help fund alternative loan options for the vulnerable who often have little to no access to capital and certainly not at reasonable interest rates. I know people here at this church who teach art to kids in their apartment complex, who drive the elderly to their doctor's appointment, who welcome children from their neighborhood at the, to their dinner table, who volunteer to train inmates and those recently released from prison in job skills, resume writing, connections to employers and jobs, and anything and everything in between. People who teach ESL, who lawyers who volunteer legal hours to, to navigate the immigration system, on and on and on and on that list could go. There is almost no end to the kinds of generosity that God's people can do if we catch this vision for our everyday work and how much it matters. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of God's generosity through His people, you know the kind of transforming power it can have. If someone's ever brought you a meal when you were laid up or you just had a baby, you know what a gift that is. It seems small to the person. It is not to you. When someone picked up your aging parent and took them to the doctor when you couldn't, or someone sent you a gift when you didn't know how you were going to cover the bills that week, or connected you with a person or an opportunity that you never would have had on your own, these are never small things. Never. There is world-changing opportunity hidden in every act of generosity. And here's why. It's because generosity is hidden at the very heart of everything God does. Of all the ways we can describe our God, generosity is one of the most important. He is a generous God. The universe itself, this physical world we inhabit, is a profound gift from a generous God who did not need to share, but wanted to share. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 2 earlier. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is no exaggeration to say, I don't know how else to say this, it is no exaggeration to say that the undercurrent, the magnetic power of all that God has done and will do, the connective tissue behind the history of all God's creation and redemption and new creation is the power of generosity. It's all a gift from beginning to end. And when we give, even just a little, we are tapping into the very heart of God. And we of all people know that power, don't we? We know that power. It's the power that raises us from the dead. It's the power that cleanses us from our sin. It's the power that creates a new person in you and me. 
It's the power that made this family in the first place, as messy as we can be sometimes. And it makes us a generous people, not just on Sunday, but on Monday. Let's pray now. Father, we give thanks to you for sending your son Jesus to not only save us by grace, but to send us by grace to be the hands and feet of Jesus in all that we say and do. In our Monday lives, in the work that you have specifically called us to do. What a gift. May the transforming power of your generosity, of your gift of grace, change everything about us and make us salt and light in a world so desperate for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.